This podcast is a proud member of the Paranormality Podcast Network. When I claw into the back of my skull and pluck forth the disjointed images and fragmented sounds to create the piecemeal sculpture we call memory, how much of the fuzzy picture can I point to with clarity? Can we call it truth? This fabrication, this constant recreation, how often is the film misremembered, a sporting event, something we can verify, Flint stones or Flint stones? It often requires a third party just to be sure, just to be sure? And with knowing how easily we fabricate our own memories, what can be said of someone else's, their lives, their truth? Is there an obligation to remember correctly? To refrain from embellishment? Is there justification to sensationalize? How should we deal with the memories of the dead? My name is Rob Basercha, and joining me are my co-hosts, David B. Jacobs and Devin Shepard, and we are Cadaver Dogs. How's it going today, guys? I'm stoked to do this episode. I feel like I say that every single time, but I'm actually excited for this one. Are you usually not uh, super excited for the other ones? Oh, fuck. You called me out. No. (laughs) No, of course I'm excited. (laughs) It's like, oh, we have to do an episode of Thing movies. You're you're not alone. I actually dread this every week. What? No. Today we're doing paranormal and true crime, and I am like here for it. That's my shit. (laughs) Obviously, I'm the one that brought these movies to you guys, so I'm stoked. It's true. I last night I slept with a pillowcase on my head with the eyes cut off. <laughs> anyway, again, I'm Rob Basercha, and I'm a grip for Local Fifty Two, as well as the owner and runner of Whimsy Whimsy Productions LLC. Joining me is Devin Shepard, and what do you do, Devin? I'm Devin Shepard. I'm a producer, writer, and director of mainly genre movies. Um, most recently, I produced the feature film A Nightmare Wakes, which is available on Shutter. I also produced the short film Attention, which is now on um, Bloody Bites with Bloody Disgusting World of Death. And yeah, I think that's all that I'm plugging today, but some pretty pretty exciting new stuff there. And I'm David B. Jacobs. I'm a writer, director, script supervisor, and horror addict. If you missed uh, the Crimson Screen Horror Film Festival, where One Last Call, a short film that I directed and Devin wrote, screened, then you can still catch it on YouTube on Blind Raven Productions' YouTube channel. Very cool. And uh, please follow us on all social media accounts, Cadaver Dogs Pod. That's Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Also, leave us a review on Podbean when you get the chance. So today, we have some really interesting movies crossing the barriers of paranormal and true crime. What is real? What is fake? And are people happy about it? And uh, presenting our first film, is Devin. All right, our first movie is from basically our backyards, The Amityville Horror from 1979. Newlyweds George and Kathy Lutz get a killer deal on their dream home in Amityville, New York. The catch? 
It was the site of a grisly murder. A man shot and killed his entire family while they slept in their beds. It really was a great deal, though. And so George and Kathy begin to build their new life in Amityville along with Kathy's children from a previous marriage, one of which befriends an imaginary girl named Jody. Spooky stuff begins to happen and George starts to um, not do so well and we begin to question, could their house actually be haunted by the spirit of the murderer or is something more sinister lurking within their home? That's a good plug. Uh, I wonder, did you guys like this movie? Yeah, dude, I loved this movie. I've seen this movie a few times and I've watched um, the remake. I can't remember if I've seen the the sequels or not. Um, and I was always like, yeah, 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 whatever. It's another fucking 70s paranormal movie, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then I started noticing more stuff in it that's so subtle and so nuanced and so unique. And I'm so stoked to talk about everything that I discovered about it today. And it made me love the movie so much more. And how about you, David? It's okay. What? <laughs> It's okay. I actually like this movie. Uh, I don't know. It took a while to grow on me, but by the end, I was like really into it. And then till the end, and then I was a little disappointed. All right. I So I think I want to start off because I brought this movie to you guys um, because I am a sucker for paranormal. I said that earlier. And then it has true crime. And there's like all this conspiracy theories around this movie and around the true story. And I'm like so stoked to like dive into it. And then I'm happy that you guys just went on like a fucking research frenzy. So, I mean, a big thing that I want to talk about today is like the true story that inspired this film and kind of what has spiraled since then um, and how this became pretty much just like a staple of America. Wow. So uh, I'm going to give a rundown on what happened before the um, events of the film, which was there was a house in Amityville, Long Island. <laughs> which I just, honestly, I just found out this happened in Long Island, which is like down the road for me. I had no idea. I think I've walked past the house before and didn't even notice. Um, they've actually changed the name of the street now because so many people showed up. No, it's still Ocean Avenue. But if you look it up on, on Google, they actually blurred out the house. So if you look up this address, and I don't think we should tell them the address because they're very much like against people knowing. It's online. You can find yeah, it. You're right. Um, but yeah, the image is blurred, so you can't tell that it's the Amityville house. But uh, regardless, I made David take me there anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah. And if you follow us on, uh, on our Instagram, then you'll find that picture. And maybe there's even a ghost in the background. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's me uh, ghosting you guys instead of showing up. <laughs> yeah, because I was totally invited. <laughs> so so what's his name? Uh, all right. Ronnie DeFeo was 20 years old, and he was a known drug addict and a drug experimenter who had struggled with his father. And uh, one night while his whole family of six, he was the seven, so his family of seven, he shot them all dead with a shotgun and then went to a bar and started telling people about it. And to make the story spookier, while he gunned down his family, no one actually woke up. Uh, they show this in the movie. They show Ralph DeFeo shooting his family Allegedly. dead. And so anyway, he instantly <laughs> gets arrested because he basically confesses to it. And he was the one who called the police, strange enough. So well, while he's in prison awaiting trial, uh, a newly wedded family, George and Kathy Lutz, uh, Kathy had three kids prior to the marriage move into this new house because they got it for under market value. And then strange things start happening. The daughter starts seeing 
in the movie she sees uh, an imaginary friend mm-hmm. but in in the reality uh supposedly she saw like a flying wolf-headed pig mm, yeah mm. and flies flies show up um they hear whispers I, it gets cold in the house. I think it, a lot of, honestly, like a lot of the typical paranormal haunting shit. So uh, one of the iconic images of this movie is the uh, the facade of the house, which looks like it has two big eyes and a really angry nose chimney, um, which is actually not the house. It was shot in New Jersey. So they built a superstructure and plastered it on top of the house. Apparently, the director really liked the way the superstructure looked because every other scene of the movie starts with an establishing shot of the house which is one of my personal pet peeves because it adds nothing. Establishing shots are meant to establish a setting, but if you break a scene to go back to the same setting, there's no reason to establish anything except the house's angry looking eyes. (laughs) I would love to do a rendition of this movie where it was like my middle school music teacher and had drawn on eyebrows. In every scene, the eyebrows progressively got angrier or more confused depending on the tone of the coming scene. That way the establishment actually does something. No, I, I think, okay. So, and I think this is a deliberate point made by the filmmaker. And I think a perfect way to, to start our conversation here. So before the film was made, there was a book. And this book was um, very, very popular. And the book was all about the Let's paranormal experiences in the home. And so the book is the whole reason that the film is made, obviously. And so the, actually the very, very first image of the film, which is, the, the establishing shot of those two windows uh, lit in red. That was actually the cover of the book. And it was very, very much, this is the symbol of demonism and Satanism and everything bad in America. And so I think the filmmakers deliberately put it constantly throughout the film in order to show that, right? In order to like say, hey, this is the symbol. Like forever you will remember this movie. Forever you will remember this house. And we do, we do to this day. It was, it's like, what, 40 years ago now. And everyone can say, I know what the Amityville house looks like. I actually like the establishing shots quite a bit. I don't but. like constant redundant. I don't like redundancy in movies. There should be no redundancy unless it's like purposeful. What I think that it does though is it does create this fame around the film, much like the film is creating this fame around the book, much like the book is creating this fame around these people, these supposedly normal Americans. And I think we can get a little bit into the conspiracy here. They were, you know, not necessarily wealthy. The house was cheap because six fucking people died there and the movie talks about this a lot they're representatives of basically the working class right at one point george Letts in the movie mentions you know the government will nickel and dime you if uh the house is too drafty you know heating's gonna go up we constantly see their their money struggles throughout the film and they're supposed to be the, the mm. representations of like everyday america in real life the Lutzes were struggling just the same and then these paranormal experiences happened and they made a lot of money talking about it on TV shows with the Warrens, making this book, making several films afterwards after the first initial one and like got a lot of recognition and didn't have money problems anymore. Well, I had actually read that their money problems weren't as substantial as they were made out to be in the movie. I've heard contradicting accounts on that as well. Yeah. I've heard they had to leave the house because they couldn't pay their mortgage. And I've heard that leaving the house, they they still have the mortgage regardless, and that doesn't help them at all. Yeah, I I don't think uh, within a month you'd be kicked out of the house and miss the first mortgage payment. Would that happen? No, it it would have been a scheme that they came up with regardless. Like, Mm -hmm. they realized, like, oh, we're not going to be able to afford this. We've got to leave. 
Right. But, you know, I mean, if the house was also just haunted. So, like, you know, when there's a house, house haunted, you've got to get out of that thing. Right. There's a scary voice telling you to get out. So the gateway to hell. There's a big pig monster that's running around. Yeah, okay. can't have pig <laughs> monster in the house. Their lawyer also said that they came up with a scheme over bottles of wine. Yes, he did. He did yeah. say that. Yeah, I definitely have theories, and I, I want to talk about them more because I think there's like a little more to dive into there, a little more scandal. There's a lot. There's a lot, and I think it, it's well done in the film, but I do want to say on the blue-collar everyday American life that yeah. I was mentioning. You know, this film originally didn't do well. Really? Really? Yeah, apparently that's what I read. I don't I know. Is that? Okay. I mean, they saw money at the beginning. They don't care about the fucking back end, so. But Stephen King saw it and then was like, oh, this is, you know, Stephen King blue collar horror guy was like, this is a perfect representation of what it feels like to be a homeowner or a person trying to make it in America. And David actually pointed out there are a lot of similarities from this film into The Shining, which came out a year later. It's a lot of yeah, similarities. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It's, a, it's a lot. Yeah, he's got his axe. He's running after... He, he's getting all possessed. He's running after his wife with an axe. He knocks down a door at some point. I want him to shout, here's Johnny. The little girl and Jody is like, oh, Jody wants me to play with her forever mm. and ever and ever. And both of them are just a metaphor for domestic abuse. So mm. there's that too. <laughs> George Lutz is very, he, he's verbally abusive with pretty much everyone, not just his wife, but like his friends and whatnot. He hits his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, he hits he his friends, He's very too. much like, I am going to be running this house. This is my house. Uh, he's, he's like terrible, but you know, he's possessed according to the movie. So it's, right. that's how they justify it. Yeah, yeah. Um, he does resume himself at the end of the movie. Yes, because he saves the dog. He saves the dog. Yeah. That's what it was a little frustrating. Yeah, I think this whole movie is about an abuser and his family, and it's shown from his point of view. And we're, like David said, we're supposed to forgive him. We're supposed to like say it's okay because he's possessed. Yeah, and that really bothered me. But there are so many little things throughout the movie that really said, you know, he is abusing his wife. I mean, the very first scene where they're alone together after after they've moved in. She's doing her ballet, you know, and her shirt's open. And you're we're like, oh, fuck, Margot Kidder is, like, fucking hot. And he literally just walks in the room, and she gets scared. And nothing scary has happened yet to this point. And we're like, that's kind of weird. That's kind of showing that, like, maybe, yeah. I mean, she's definitely startled by him. But, like, that kind of shows that maybe she's a little bit scared of George. Maybe. I just figured it was, like, new environment, kind of. You know, I'm in a new place. They're, they also just got married. It seems like, I mean, they don't reference, I suppose, how long George and Kathy have been together. But there's definitely this feeling throughout of it that George is an outsider to this family. Mm. And he's imposing himself on them. He's saying, no, this is my family. But the ki- the kids don't seem to like him. Jody doesn't like George, is, is what the little girl says at one point. Yeah. I mean, they're even just referring to him by his first name. It's really weird it feels like he's not really their father in fact i think and and correct me if i'm wrong here but i think the kids actually in real life called george mr lutz for a good portion of their lives Hmm. he insisted on them taking his last name yeah adopting them yes they actually took his last name so while we're on this there was a newer film that came out called my amityville horror the oldest son talked about the abuse that he suffered from george but he was still insistent on the paranormal activity which is pretty interesting. So if anyone can watch the documentary, I highly recommend it. It's a sad, beautiful portrayal of a haunted character, um, Danny Lutz. 
who's this who's the stepson of George and, and the son of Kathy, he mentions the abuse. And it's the first time that anyone actually like said it out loud. But he also still very much believes that he was haunted and these paranormal things happened. And I think you were you were on the track here, Rob. It's this tragic story of his parents possibly made up this lie in order to hide the fact that their marriage was unhappy or in order for, you know, the mom to protect her children from her abusive husband who, as Danny put it, you know, hit the kids. And Danny, in order to protect himself, has to believe this lie, has to believe in the paranormal in order to survive. It's a survival tactic, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just a sad, tragic story where America's feeding into this. America's feeding into this whole idea of the paranormal and really, really like putting the Lutzes on a pedestal and want to hear more Mm. and more and more and more stories. And all the while, what probably did happen, and this is all hearsay, but what probably was happening was that George, you know, was an abusive father and we're feeding into the story and it just keeps happening and we're not actually putting a light on the real issues instead we're putting we're like giving them fame and giving them money to like keep living on in this this horrible situation that they're in it's surprising to me that they were able to even portray the abuse in the movie Mm -hmm. and then i'm just i'm watching i'm seeing him being abusive and i'm like oh yeah this it's a metaphor for for domestic abuse obviously then i'm like oh was he actually abusive and then i'm talking to devin about she's like no yeah that there's Mm. a lot of evidence to support this the kid has corroborated that yes he was abusive this is not just something they did for dramatic effect it's like well now this whole story is a lot more fucked up (laughs) yeah right yeah, yeah, it's definitely a severe storyline. So, uh, do you guys think the story is true? No. <laughs> Devin. <laughs> oh, oh, you mean like you think the Lutzes are lying? Yeah. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think? It's oh, made yeah, up? I one thousand percent believe the Lutzes are lying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I but, don't think there's a chance. But if so, this is the greatest American hoax ever, and for that, I like mad respect. Well, the greatest American hoax besides the warrens but that's a different story for a different time but they're also a part of the story so all in all this whole entire thing greatest american hoax period yeah the, the warrens showed up they covered that in conjuring shit it's like oh yeah this there are totally spirits in the house Ooh, whatever first off i'm sorry ghosts aren't real supernatural isn't real oh no i'm jewish hell isn't real <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this is, it's, they're so cruelly lying. They they contradict themselves constantly. Even the lawyer who they came up with the idea with, he tried to only give them 12% cut. So they said, nah, fuck you. And they went and got a different guy to write the book. So, But then that lawyer went and got his own guy and they still wrote little articles that caused all the lawsuits. If you read those articles, it does. it's like saying different things. The, all the details are different. Uh, there, there are no voices telling the, the priest get out. The priest is still there, but that's it. The details of it are different. There's a part in that one where Kathy Lutz suddenly becomes an old woman for a minute. <laughs> that happens in the movie, right? It does. Yeah. Does it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That happens at the end of the movie after he's, uh, when he's knocking down the door with the ax. Yeah. Okay. Maybe that part was in the Lutz's version then. I don't know. Um, <laughs> a lot of stuff happens and it just... It, it doesn't even have, like, an internal logic to it. It's like, what what's causing yeah. this? Is it a pathway to hell? Is there a ghost? Like, what what is the source of what's happening? What is its motivation? What are the rules of it? Like, they, they, they don't 
have a clear through line and I think that's also what really holds me back from enjoying the movie more because it just it, there's too much things and there's not one thing they they don't have a specific source and it, it's yeah very frustrating that doesn't bother me because since it's a through way to hell it's supposed to be like spirits passing back and forth causing all this trouble but it's more than that <laughs> well yeah and the spirits also possess you and blah blah but um i mean yeah. i don't really mind that the, the logical rules break down when you're faced with a gateway to hell i kind of appreciate <laughs> that but uh, i do think the movie has a really good crescendo until it's abrupt ending which is a pretty big letdown a let's down it's a let's down <laughs> so the amityville horror i think started this craze of paranormal invasion films and showing how they can disrupt the so-called perfect american family right i mean that's what poltergeist was all about that's what so many movies in the 80s was about and this was like really the start of it 1979 cusp baby we're about to destroy some america and i think and this is i really want to get into this when we get into our next film but we have to remember this is also just like coming out of the vietnam war and even in the mm. even in the movie they mentioned george letts you know was a veteran did go to the war oh. comes home oh. and weirdly is coping not so great and through abuse and through depression and is not doing well not supported uh financially due to his uh service so i think it's it's saying a lot more there than we realize about america yeah and i think that's a really interesting point because it does seem like it's the breakdown of the perfect american family but when you really look at them they're I mean, I don't want to say they're not the perfect American family. Like, a family doesn't have to be one thing. But they're not the then-contemporary idea of what a family should be. That the father, is he's not the biological father of the children. They're newlyweds, but she has a 10-year-old son already. She has three kids. They don't have any money, but they're still in a house that is bigger than they can afford. It's like they're chasing the american dream they're chasing this perfect yeah. ideal but it's almost toxic for them it, it's hurting them more than it's helping she thinks she needs to have a, i'm not saying the real kathy lots i'm saying the one in the movie uh she feels she, she needs to have the husband who can father her children so she marries this fucking asshole we've got to have this big beautiful house even though we can't afford it oh fuck it's haunted yeah actually that's so interesting what you said like she needs to marry this guy who can father her children there is a little bit of toxic masculinity in here that's definitely very <laughs> present in this film yeah there's a lot of like male bravado which is interesting so we were talking about whether or not this movie's real and uh the actors in the movie agreed with us james Braun and margot robbie went on record and said they really don't believe the story margot robbie margot kenner ah did I say Marco Robbie Lois earlier? Lane, I said not Margo. Harley Quinn. Lois Lane, yeah, yeah, yeah. Margo Kidder uh, <laughs> said that. It's interesting for different reasons, actually. Margo Kidder just straight up didn't believe it. And she actually said that she probably should have tried to believe it because and her acting would have been better, which I thought her acting was very good in the movie. Um, James Brolin was actor. also very good. But he said that speaking to George, uh, he realized that George was too good of a speaker and too charismatic to believe him which I found mm. really interesting. And I think that actors in particular are in a unique position to sniff out sophists and con artists as uh, their job is basically to fake things. And to like over-observe. Yeah, right. Like they should react yeah. to things truthfully in the moment or whatever. I want to go to our next film, but first, 
Here is a promo for another podcast on the Paranormality Network. Hey guys, it's Heather and Kristen, the hosts of Sinister Sweethearts Podcast, and we want to take a little bit of time to tell you about our show. We're former college sweetmates turned lifelong best friends who share a love for all things weird, creepy, and sinister. Come along with us as we journey through the 50 states of America, exploring everything from the paranormal to conspiracy theories to true crime and everything in between. It's a wild ride with a new state chosen every week, and you never know what you're going to get. New episodes drop every Tuesday, so come find us at SinisterSweethearts.com or your favorite podcast player, and let's explore our sinister sides together. Coming back to our podcast, let's talk about the first slasher film to feature a man wearing a pillowcase. Between February and May of 1946, in the cities of Texarkana, Texas, and Arkansas, five people were murdered and three wounded by a man known only as the Phantom Killer. In 1976, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, written and directed by Charles B. Pierce, was released based on this true story. Only the names have been changed. And also a lot of other stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A lot of stuff. Yeah, a whole (laughs) lot of stuff. A whole lot of stuff. And a trombone. Uh, So, uh, again, what what do you guys think? Do you like this movie? Uh, I'm just going to throw it out there. I don't really like this movie. I question if it's a slasher movie. It is usually described as slasher. It definitely has a lot of elements in common with slasher. Yeah, okay, going off of that, I think a lot of this film is actually inspired by, oh, fuck, excuse me for pronouncing this, David and I went into a very long discussion about this, Giallo? Giallo, I think. Horror fans are literally strangling our necks right now. I'm sorry, I don't speak Italian. Please just tell me how to fuck and pronounce this word, like, leave us a comment and tell me how to pronounce it, please. (laughs) But yes, so, so I think it's inspired by the Giallo films because right before this was when they were becoming really famous in america which then continued to inspire psycho and peeping tom and led to like these procedural true crime stuff which led to slasher so i feel like around this time which is 1976 we're starting to see that that real spark of slasher because halloween comes out a year later two two years later two years later this was after black christmas and uh texas chainsaw massacre Right, mm. Texas Chainsaw. That was the one I keep missing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So around this time I felt like slashers are are pretty big. And this one this one was unique in the way that it was more based around the story of the cops and and mm. the solving of the case. Speaking of, there's very little interesting police work done in this movie. Um and hmm. there's a lot of problems with this. All right. The first half of the movie is like basically all filler. There's a lot of nonsense. Well, the com- comedic there relief is filler. so much filler, dude. There's a whole like it's, it's... there's a whole like musical number during prom that has nothing to do with the story. There's a whole like 2-minute scene of a woman spiking punch just to smile about it. There's a bunch of police jargon that doesn't do anything. Um, <laughs> also the sound quality in this movie is <laughs> awful. 
That's uh, true. The sound quality yeah. is awful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's God. In some ways, it almost adds to a sense of charm that it, it feels very amateurish and that it, it almost adds to the uh, documentary style of it that like, oh, they can't even afford good sound. Okay. They also hold shots too long. When, when women are screaming, they just scream forever. I'm, I'm just crapping on this movie. I just don't like it. <laughs> it, it, did, it did bother me, and I felt a lot like on women violence. And I think I'm, I'm with you, Rob. There were so many. All of that moves so, so, so quickly. It's just random scene, random scene, random scene, random scene. And now we're going to sit in this killing scene for 10 minutes and stare at this woman as she dies. And then we're going to show her dead body for another long time. And then we're going to show her getting stabbed with a trombone for a good five minutes. All the stuff that you guys complained about, I like. (laughs) Of course. Um, I think it's, I I think the movie works very well when it is leaning into its documentary style and during all the kill scenes, because they are so freaking disturbing. I think the Mm. kill scenes are, are actually effective that it's not like, of Friday the 13th where you're like yeah Jason go kill them you're like these these are real people this is really messed up I don't know if that's moral I don't know if it's right but it is effective and I will give it that part I will give it that much I have my qualms about whether or not it's respectful because it's it's really disrespectful like I have that problem with it oh the filmmaker Uh, was fucking so disrespectful yeah incredible okay can we talk about what the fuck happened so in the 40s, this Texarkana was, like, fucking terrified of this killer. And then 30 years later, this director, uh, Charles P- B. Pierce, who grew up in Texarkana, lived in Texarkana, decided, I'm going to make a movie about the scariest, most terrible thing that has ever happened to this entire town. I'm going to shoot it in the town. I'm going to use people whose parents probably suffered, like, at the hands of this mass murderer and or sorry serial killer and then i'm gonna premiere it in this town and this is like gonna be the only thing this town is known for is for this fucking movie about a serial killer (laughs) can we i mean come on david you were talking about immoral that's like all kinds of fucked up immoral yeah yeah and um in the poster of the movie it says in 1946 this man killed five people Today, he still lurks the streets of Texarkana, Arkansas. So the officials of Texarkana decided they were going to sue him over that because they're like, yo, dude, you're telling people the killer's still out there. You're just trying to stir up panic with this. And Which happened. To some, yeah. People actually believed that, hey, this killer's still in fucking Texarkana because <laughs> they never the like, officially cut him. Oh, yeah. The movie doesn't talk about the fact that they probably did catch him (laughs) right what do you mean they probably caught him so so at the end of the movie um there's like a showdown between the killer and the cops which is really weird the killer's just like walking around in broad daylight in his mask for some reason he's wearing the mask and they're chasing him and then uh he gets shot with a shotgun in the leg and he runs away and he runs into the swamp great so you're like all right well did he die yeah that's best part of the movie by far and you're led to believe that he either went to the swamp and died, or he got away. So, David, what really happened? Cool. So that whole swamp thing, complete fiction. Never happened. Really, they found there was a guy named Yule Swinney, who I don't even think he actually lives in Texarkana. I think he lived nearby. 
Um, but he mm-hmm. was a car thief, and an officer started to connect that all these cars are getting stolen around the same time of the killing. And then uh, Yule's wife, Peggy, literally married the same day. She gets arrested, she comes in, and she starts telling them, like, oh, yeah, Yule, Yule did all these killings. He did this. I was there for this one. She starts pointing to evidence that she shouldn't know that is not public knowledge. So, um, yeah, she, like, brought them to the exact spot where one of the killings happened. And they're like, oh, okay. So this Yule Swinney guy, he he's probably the Phantom Killer is what you're telling us. And she goes, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And like, okay, well, will you testify to that in court? And she goes, no. <laughs> and she's, she's his wife. They just got married, so you can't make her. Wait, so she literally got married on the day that she went to the fucking cops? I think so. I just read this today. I might be getting some of these details wrong. Do your own research. Yeah, some, some, something like that. Conspiracy. Weird. Yeah. And then they arrested him for car thief, for car theft. Uh, he had a history of car theft, so they they were able to call it habitual and give him a larger sentence because of that. There are some questions about whether this is moral. It was legal, but there are definitely ethical questions that are brought up about it. Mm. He was released from jail before the movie, to be fair. So he was free at the time. And then he died in the 90s. So, it's so not the poster's known. not wrong. He was never charged with being the phantom killer. Um... And they weren't able to further investigate. At some point, they're just like, he's in jail. What's the point? But, like, the, the cops who worked on the case continued to swear for the rest of their lives. Like, yeah, that guy's a fan kill. And the movie's just pretending he was never caught. Mm. And just right. leaves Which, out this entire thing. Again, <laughs> caused all this mania around this town being like, hey, like, there might be a murderer still in the streets here. We don't know. Much like, you know, Amityville, I doubt anyone knows that town for anything other than the house, you know? And by the way, Amityville's a really diverse town, which they do not tell you in the movie. Um, it is divided. The The movie is set uh, southern side of Amityville, which is uh, wealthier, but it's, it's really heavily segregated. Long Island has some messed up stuff with its segregation. Super fucked. But yeah, you go one block north of the Amityville house and it's like an extremely diverse neighborhood and there's it's just all white people in the entire movie. Uh, yeah. And, and Texarkana too. Texar- yeah. Yeah. yeah, Texarkana is, I mean, I've never been there, but according to the internet, it is a very diverse town. And the main guy in the movie, the one who Ben Johnson plays, Ben Johnson gives a great performance, but he was super miscast because that guy's Hispanic. Oh. Yeah, because it's like yeah. fucking partially in Texas. <laughs> yeah, and I think David, you made a point when we were talking when we were texting about this earlier. It, it's something different with the whitewashing in this film, and the fact that it then makes this movie about, or both of these movies rather, about invading like the so-called, like I was saying earlier, perfect American family. Like, yeah, I'd probably phrase the that truth so is wrong. That, no, I know exactly what you mean. That it, it's they. You didn't phrase that poorly, Devin. You have a really good point in that. The, what's interesting about these movies being whitewashed is not only the time period with their whitewash, but that the films themselves pit uh, the core family unit, which is representative of American family values, against an outsider province that is trying to invade them. So if we were going to put a kind of diversity within this film, given the time period and the context of an American family, it would possibly dilute the meaning of this. Yeah, because in, in reality, it, the true events of these were not about outsiders breaking in the phantom killer was just a guy who lived around there amityville 
the 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 DeFeo kid was literally the son of the family and has alleged that his parents abused him. In this case, I definitely say alleged because that guy is not reliable at all. <laughs> right. And and George Lutz is Lutz is a stepfather of mm. his family. I think I think you're so right in that like they wanted to show that the horror is coming from the horror is coming from inside the house. And if they were to at this time, I'm sure their ideas are like, if we're diversifying, then people aren't going to relate because only moviegovers are white. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry. White I said, yeah, I said, yeah, like a bad time. Cause it sounded like I was agreeing. Like, yeah, people are going to like white. No, no, we, we've learned that that's not the case right now. That that's changing a lot. Finally, it just took 50 yeah. fucking years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. diversity. They're, they're fear mongering for a very specific audience and just ignoring the majority of america Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Yeah. and off of that david i one of the things i did really enjoy about the town that dreaded sundown was that the killer is very very human every single kill that we see him do he fucks up he he just like (laughs) trips he uh, like breaks things the wrong way he's not superhuman i like how he breathes yes in all the later slasher movies you always see like they just uh, they seem completely still or whatever but when he's there he's like he can see him breathing and his mask it's pulling in and pushing out um and it's like so frantic and like he's out of breath all the time (laughs) (laughs) yeah so I did want to talk about this one thing. I'm just going to totally derail, derail us now. Um, I had mentioned earlier that in the Amityville film, George Lutz was a vet. They talk about the Vietnam War. So the Vietnam War ended in 1975, um, which primes us for, you know, the characters in, in Amityville to be uh, vets. But also in the town that dreaded Sundown, it was made in 1979. So again dealing with Vietnam vets, but took place in 1946, which is right after World War II ended. And so I think there's this relationship here between the era that it chose to, to redo, which is 1946, versus the era that it's in, that they they show a correlation of men coming home, which they mention in the movie The Town That Dreaded Sundown. They mention, you know, this, this guy who later on gets murdered, just came home from the war. And it explores this idea of America thinks they just saw all the horrors overseas. They think that, like, everything bad is happening anywhere else but America, and America's great, blah, 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 blah. But in reality, there's still horror at home. And I think this goes a little bit into what we were saying about, like, the horrors coming from inside the house. These movies are about the insiders, not the outsiders. Mm. There's still more to fear than the other. It's America that we should fear. It's it's all this like anti-war propaganda almost. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's it it, Anti- it is really interesting. That's interesting. Well, it's it's interesting to think of them in terms of like PTSD. George might be uh, abusive because of his time in Vietnam, not necessarily, but a lot of that anger and frustration or delusion or whatever might be a, um, a response to that, as well as the killer in uh the town of dreaded sundown i mean this is a major stretch but if they happen to be coming from world war ii which had just happened and bring that bloodlust to the nation it is kind of like a town which seems like it could finally get this breath of fresh air following this terrible international incident has to deal with the domestic incident you know right so it kind of says like the horrors are not over and i think i'm saying anti-war in the in the sense of like 
there's more than just war on foreign soil. There's war on our own soil that we need to fight these battles first before we can go anywhere else. But also Amityville saying mm-hmm. a lot of what you were saying, Rob, like about PTSD and like I was saying, I was saying earlier with like with people having trouble staying afloat after a war um, with all the economic turndown and stuff like that. Uh, showing more of like the reality of the re- repercussions of war and showing yeah. us being like we were all raw raw america last year but this year meh, maybe not so much yeah 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 i mean Let's in town it's also because town wants to uh uh propagate that the killer is still out there or whatever it's also saying like the horror will never be over there yes. will always be some other battle to fight we're never going to get to rest there will never be peace like it, it is kind of the the whole era of the the late seventies after Vietnam. I've always found this interesting that it kind of we had an era of horror movies that are about these killers that are stalking us, and mm-hmm. anyone can be a killer. That's basically what the slasher movies were about as a whole. Halloween is it's some maniac in this town is possessed mm-hmm. by evil a nightmare on elm street you have he's uh, a pedophile child killer it's all just these very local menaces and mm-hmm. i mean maybe it's even from nixon watergate I'm not, I'm not even really certain where the the exact source of that came from it's america starting to distrust the government it's America starting to distrust their home. And I think a lot of it is coming from this hippie culture where we really start to say, hey, like, question what these people are telling you. Like, maybe it's okay to have sex. Maybe it's okay to like this kind of music. Maybe it's okay to like the devil. I mean, Anton LaVey was all throughout. I think he started in like 66 through the 70s. Like, it's this whole counterculture movement. And there's this one shot in Amityville, which I think says says a lot to me. Okay, not one shot. There's two shots. When um, Kathy is doing the ballet scene, I, there's so much that happens in that scene. It's so perfect. But she puts a flower in her hair. You know, she's probably used to be a hippie. And then there's, there's an exterior of her bedroom at one point, and you see a, an acoustic guitar hanging up on the wall, and you see these flowers, and you see all these, like, relics that were originally symbols of the hippie culture just like hung up and you're like oh this is what happens when the counterculture grows up Hmm. this is us showing how to fight back against the establishment and against like as i say rah rah america as an adult Hmm. that's neat i i that's interesting i gotta disagree with you because i think there's a lot of (laughs) counterculture movies in the 70s but these two movies are actually highly conservative um i mean they Mm. they 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 prey on conservative fears um fears of satanism counter to religious aspects and like fear of you know foreignness which is uh we see the eastern dragon and the devil's room and how we should stay away and just consolidate within the family structure things like that and uh you know the killer well here go ahead i'm just going to continue Sorry, I just, I cut you no, off, no, go but ahead, I was going to say, maybe the fear then is about these counterculture hippies becoming the conservatives. And when I say, like, when they Ooh. grow up, maybe it's them, like, saying, oh, shit, maybe my parents were right about a few things. Hmm. Well, I'm into that. The last part of what you're saying, I think, is right. Mm-hmm. Um, in, that, in that, like, these conservative horror films are supposed to get people who are engage in counterculture to fear that counterculture and embrace conservatism 
because the conservative people are always the heroes, you know, the priests and whatnot. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the priest is blinded when he's when he faces this otherness. You know, you got to stay away from that shit. But they're yeah. punished for their conservatism. No, they're not. No, 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 no. It's... Yeah, because she she has to get married to this guy. They've got to buy the really nice house. They're punished for their conservatism. Well, it it, play, it, it plays upon the conservative fear you know, of, of like Satanism. And when you face that, you got to go away. Right. But there's nothing fun about it. There's no appeal to this counterculture. Right. And like, it's, it's very, uh, in line with what if you're a, you know, start a family doesn't quite work, you know? And mm-hmm. they're all, they're also like a non-traditional family. I mean, he picks up, uh, he marries a woman who has three kids prior. Yeah, they're super non-traditional. Yeah, yeah, which is strange. And like his friends call that out. Well, and, and town as well, right? It's like, I love what you're saying. It's, we don't actually see this counterculture at all. And in town, it's the same way. It's like, they parked. We don't really like get that experience of them parking. But we see the repercussions of that, which is them being slaughtered. Hmm. There are some changes also in town compared to the reality that lean into that. Like... uh. Uh, the the girl's murdered with the trombone, the Peggy Loomis and her boyfriend Roy. Mm. Uh, the real world versions of those are Betty Joe Booker and Paul Martin. They were not a couple, they're just mm. friends. Yeah. Uh, she was playing the saxophone not at prom, but at a veterans dinner, something like that. Completely different. And they just changed it in order to make these characters more fitting with the counterculture, more fitting with. The, the trope of someone who would die in a slasher, which hadn't even been established yet, unless you think it was established by Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw, which is okay, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But it is really interesting how similar it is to uh, Friday the 13th in that it's, uh, it's, it's all about premarital sex and punishment. You know, they go away to engage in sexual acts. But then the Phantom also kills a married couple or... Uh, the uh, husband and tries to kill the wife yeah yeah but that's when he messes up like like he was doing what he was supposed to be doing in the film's logic and he was getting away with it successfully and it's when he he attacked uh someone who didn't deserve to be punished that things went awry that she got away yeah 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 you, you know what i'm saying not that interesting within the film logic it's about like a biblical kind of you know punishment of to course it should be mentioned sex. again a lot of this is real and that's just what actually happened um, and the more he glorifies it, kind of. <laughs> so so this is a really good segue to, I think, one of the central points of this podcast is, which movie do you think did more justice to the source material? And by the source material, do you mean reality or what the Lutzes claim to have happened? Open to your interpretation. <laughs> like, is it the most respectful, etc.? Neither say? of these do justice. Both really? of these are, oh my goodness. I mean, if the Lutzes lied, first of all, the Amityville is just like giving them a bigger and better platform to shout their lies mm. upon and, and fuck up their children's lives and earn a bunch of money. And then, I mean, everything I've, I said about town in the fact that like so much of, of Texarkana was angry at the fact this film was filmed there and showed such a horrible, horrible light on the town. And they're like, hey, these are my relatives that you're like showing murdered on screen. And by the way, you're not even showing them murdered like in the right way. You're not showing their characters the way that their lives are yeah. totally different. And you're, sh- you're showing them was, as completely different people. I think it was the brother of Mary Jean Larry, who in the movie is Linda Mae Jenkins. She's one of the first ones who's actually killed. Um, her brother uh, sued the movie and was like, hey, you're making my sister look like this... Loose girl. Yeah, loose jerk 
who dropped out of high school or whatever and actually she like graduated when she was 16 because she's really smart and wasn't anything at all what you are describing in this movie and you're making right. her look bad and every year grandmama has and to she... go watch this movie at the drive-in in texarkana and be like well that was my sister in this film, and I'm angry about it. Well, I mean, I, I actually think Amityville Horror does really good justice to the source material because it's meant to sensationalize a probably fictitious event, and I think it is successful in that it's a pretty good movie, and uh, I enjoyed watching it. Um, but is that okay? Right. It's such an interesting question because, like, I, I think you were well, so right earlier to ask the question, Rob, of, like, do you believe this is even real? Yeah, yeah. But that's not what I would argue. That's not what the source material is. The source material is the book. And it does the book justice because it sold okay. well. And it became Have you read a, the book? No, I haven't read the book. I'm not going to read the book. I didn't like the movie enough to read the book. Forgetting but, whether it does justice to the book, do you think the book and movie are responsible? Do filmmakers have any ethical responsibility is this something we should even be thinking about or is this like a ridiculous question like david shut up this is a fun silly movie that you're supposed to have fun with well i mean the amityville horror uh the lutzes are con artists if you ask me but uh mostly in a harmless kind of sense well not really i mean you could argue that they hurt their kids forcing them to live a lie but they also probably generated lots of money from it so yeah. it's kind of a give and take. But did anyone outside of the family really suffer because of this lie? I would say no. Arguably the people who live there now, although I guess they chose to. <laughs> uh, people like me and Devin keep driving by and taking pictures. <laughs> I'd rather take a haunted house over people showing up. Um, but the town that dreaded sundown. Uh, I mean, I don't think it really does justice to the source material because I just think it's a kind of bad movie. But I also think it, it's like... Like honestly, if you're gonna if you're gonna sensationalize the death of somebody, at least do it well, you know. And it, so, do you think it's okay? Like, if you make a good piece of art, yeah. If you talk to the brother, no, I don't about... care about that. I mean, I what? do care about that, but I think you no no not do it well as in do it ethically. I mean, create a good product, like make something good. Uh, and I think the movie's bad, so I think you didn't do them service. Hold on, no, you're not answering the question. I though, am answering I said... the question. No, 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 because I said, uh, do you think it's ethical? And you just said, I don't care if it's ethical. I care if they do it well. But I think do if they think do it well, ethical? then it's ethical. Yes. What? No. I think if what? they do it well, then it's ethical. But I think if you do it badly, then it's unethical. And I think but it's the difficult. argument, the argument also being for, for the Amityville horror, though, is that what if the making of this movie, which at the time was good, people liked this film. I like Amityville Horror now. Yeah, okay. I think it's good. But it yeah. fucked up, it continued to fuck up the Lutzes' life. So in that sense, it's both good but unethical. Well, no, 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 no. They, the, they, did they Ronnie did DeFeo get a cut? And does that affect anything? <laughs> uh, there's. I saw something that Ronnie DeFeo might have gotten a cut i'm not sure if that actually happened or if it was just discussed but i think that it was that original lawyer again was like you know if we're gonna do this then ronnie DeFeo is the one who started the whole thing and he we've got to give him a cut of the profits yes yes yeah 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 he did and then does that affect anything is that even a problem like he's a terrible person who murdered his family does that mean he shouldn't get a profit while he's in jail for the rest of his life. This is a thing that's been brought up several times um, over the past year. Is like, can yeah. inmates be making money by selling their rights? 
And the point really? is to not um, sensationalize and not to idolize these killers, right? So very, uh, very relevant to that was the recent, um, it was called Dez. It, it was like an English, did you guys see that? Dez, it's a, a mini series about um, a killer who, you know, killed 13 or 14 men. No, please don't. Um, yeah, and it would have been really good, except uh, one of the tenets of the film was that we didn't want to sensationalize the killer. I'm like, I'm watching a fucking show about the killer. Like, that is so hypocritical. If you're going to make any kind of media about a killer, you're sensationalizing it. So embrace that and run with it. If you're going to hold back halfway, then stop edging me, you motherfucker. Stop it. I don't like being edged. Okay, I, I understand Rob's argument now. Is the town that dreaded sundown more ethical than because they do not tell you the name of yule swinney who allegedly did it and are we less ethical because we totally just i, I mean i gave all of the real names you guys didn't i did that well i would i would <laughs> say uh i mean well he, uh, first off uh he was never convicted so uh we can't say he was he never was convicted killer. he was never convicted no. so we can't say he was killer it's completely a uh, allegations um yep. and uh again to my point i think the movie was not very good so I think in, in that way, it doesn't do them justice. Um, it also doesn't do it correctly, right? So it doesn't document the killings correctly. And it's not good either. So on both accounts. And it didn't, well, it hits the trifecta. And the third account is it didn't ask permission, right? So like, all right, okay. you're going to combine all three. Yes. D does it do it accurately? Does it act per ask permission? And does it do it well? If you ask me, doing it well, I think is the most important. The other two are also. And I think important. that's not relevant. Well, I don't think it's not whether a it does documentary. It well is relevant at all. If it's documentary, then it has an obligation to truth. If it's a fictitious source based on the truth, then it has no obligation to the truth whatsoever. It's fiction. But it claims to be true. No, it doesn't. It's fiction. It claims to be yes, based it upon. It's it's it, still it fiction. Says, this is a true story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's still fiction. It, it doesn't even. I don't even think it says based upon. I think it just says this is a true story. But it's not a documentary. It's a fiction movie. Same thing. Like, you could say these are true events, but it's like, it's a joke. It's it's a fiction movie. Everything in a movie is a lie. You're supposed to know that going in. So, like, the example that would support your argument, maybe, would be Fargo, where they also claimed that's a true story, and it's, it's literally just a story they made up, and they've said that in interviews explicitly. But in that case, I think it's much more clear that this is a joke, and the movie is intended this way. Whereas in Town of Dread Sundown, it's like, no, they're, they're totally saying this is real. They're totally playing into the sensationalization. Mm -hmm. They are marketing and profiting off of this murderer. Is that okay? Forget about whether it's good. Pretend it was the best movie ever. Is that okay? Well, I don't know. I mean, and I'm not movies. Taking, I'm not well, taking wait, wait, a stance, by the way. Hold up. No. I, I, I feel like, I feel like y people get talked into a corner here because we start putting faces on the names. But this kind of argument, I don't think, is guilty of slippery slope if we if we uh, apply it to all war movies, because all war movies profit off war, and you're not going to say, oh no, they're all unethical doing them. But you could also mm -hmm. write like, look, like these these are so bad. This is showing people how bad war is, right? That's a fair point, actually. No, I agree. All right. Yeah, but and then it's also interesting because like. If we're, I mean, if we're talking about true crime, podcasting is like the number one place for true crime right now. We're literally talking about true crime on this podcast as well. So, David, yeah. it goes to your question also of like in our sense, <laughs> if we're making this podcast, are we even being ethical? Yeah. So I think under the same circumstances, because Rob, I agree with you. Any war movie is a 
profiting off of war, then every true crime podcast is profiting off of murder. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, they're both profiting off of true crimes. One crime is just way worse than the other, being war. I guess one isn't considered a crime. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I guess the bigger problem is, like, is it okay to spotlight families without asking them? And you're like, no, that's not okay. They should be compensated. Yes. Right? And were the families well, compensated? Yes. But... The whole point is that they got no. compensated, and that's what fucked it up too, right? It's like well, well, should they even be compensated for Amityville? But what about the other one, like uh, the town of dreaded sundown? Like the town of dreaded right. sundown. Um, they did change what? the names, but I mean, I don't think like you could just type. I mean, I don't know how it would have happened then. They they did change all of the people's names, which I think is good and helpful. Mm-hmm. Right, um, but that's so an be warned if you look point, though, David, because. The Lutzes, yeah, they don't change their name. And I think yeah. I think that's a like, point against the Lutzes. It's like, really? You don't want to protect your identity at all? Not even of your kids? That's that's the parents not looking out for their children. That's them being like, no, no, no. We want the fame. We're not changing our names for the movie. Put us up there. And put us up there with a Brolin. And put us up there with a, with a Margot Kidder. Make us hot. <laughs> they were really hot. Both of them. Um... I want to I I want to end it on on this note. If you haven't seen my Amityville horror, <laughs> please go watch that film. It, it it is so. We talk about horror films so much, but like that's that, and we we talked about so many like quote unquote true horror films here today. But that that movie shows the real horror of a family and the repercussions of what was the media sensation of the Amityville horror. Um, so I, I, I highly suggest all everyone to go to go watch that film. Um, it's available on Amazon. And tell us what you guys think, because I don't think we've come to a definitive answer. Do you guys think that filmmakers have any ethical obligation when they are portraying real events? Do you think it is okay to depict uh, real murders? What do you think are the moral responsibilities of a filmmaker and of storytellers? So, once again, we're going to end the episode on uh, my favorite part of the show, which is the bone review section, where we review each film on a one to four bone rating with half bones in between. And uh, to start this off, we're going to start with Dave B. Jacobs. How do you rate both these movies? I'm going to give them both uh, two bones, leaning toward a little bit less than that, but two bones is fine. Mm. Uh, I I think they're both okay. Uh, they both do some interesting things. I think they both have a lot of problems. Amityville Horror is very much establishing a lot of the tropes of modern haunted house movies that I think had not really been done in haunted house movies before that, but in a modern context just feel repetitive and boring and, again, just not as well as they're done in later movies like The Shining or The Changeling or... To Conjuring? Yeah, I'm sorry, To Conjuring is a better movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Town of Dread Sundown, I really like the docu-style. Um, even though I have those uh, ethical questions about it, I do think the kill scenes are disturbing and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but the comedic relief is completely terrible and horrendous. And pulls me out of it every time it's up there it's even transphobic at points which is just it, it's not even funny humor at any point i like the uh the remake reboot sequel meta whatever that is better maybe we'll even cover that at some point if you guys like this one who knows yeah i think 
everything David just said, I'm pretty much in the same wavelength, except I didn't enjoy the kill scenes as much in town. So I'm going to go down to one and a half bones on that one. And I really did enjoy watching Amityville this time around. Uh, it could be because I had one beer too many. I don't know. Uh, but it's going to get three bones for me. Very interesting. Uh, I'm going to give uh, The Town That Dreaded Sundown one bone. I really didn't really like this movie. Uh, although I like the end, even though it's not historically correct. Uh, or <laughs> in a lot of ways, ethically correct. Uh, and um, Amityville Horror, I'm going to say two bones. It's an okay movie. Uh, I do like it. Um, and, but in a lot of ways, uh, the actors carried the story. I just felt like the the later half was quite good. The ending was a severe letdown, and the beginning was a little bit too slow for me. Well, all right, guys, that's going to be it for our episode on Amityville Horror and the town that dreaded sundown, uh, where we asked questions about the ethical obligation of filmmakers when in reference to historical events. Uh, let us know your thoughts and our social media accounts. And until next time. Get out! Get out! <laughs>